0: I want to pick up, um, last week, if you were with us last week, and of course you may not have been, but we were um, talking about these guys who Paul had met in Ephesus, really the first people that he seems to have met in Ephesus, and the fact that they hadn't really engaged with the Spirit. And we talked about why the Spirit was important. And I just want to follow that story on what happened then in that city of Ephesus. So I'm going to pick it up from verse 8. One day, the evil spirit answered them, "'Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you?' And the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they'd done. A number who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly.' And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachma. Um, and if, you, if you're reading along and you, or you're listening, um, a drachma, it says in the footnote, was worth about a day's wage. So 50,000 days worth of wages. Work it out. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I'd been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. And he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the skilled workers there. He called them together, together, along with the workers in related trades, and said... You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who's worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of Her Divine Majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed together into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, People of Ephesus, doesn't the whole world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You brought these men here, though they've neither robbed temples nor uttered blasphemy against our goddess. If then, Demetrius and his associates have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is... We're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we wouldn't be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. And after he said this, he dismissed the assembly. And when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. So in this big city of Ephesus, this massive commotion. But let me start much closer to home. This is our city, Salford. I wonder if you'd do me a favor. Um, Could you stand just for a moment? Again, it's like being in an Anglican church. Just stand for a moment. Okay. I'm going to put up a, a statement next about our city. And if that statement is of no interest to you whatsoever, can you just sit down? But if you care about the statement that's made about the city, will you stay standing? You got it? So the statement goes up, if you don't care, sit down. If you do care, stay standing. Salford is now just West Manchester. If you're not bothered about that, sit down. If it matters to you, stand. Okay now stay standing if you sat why did you sit why doesn't it matter to you just shout some stuff out in you know, a run round right <laughs> Yep. Yeah. i'm from london he's okay. from london he's yeah. not from here why else does it not matter to you annie it's just a name it's just a name someone else why did you sit down I always thought that was what it was, anyway. <laughs> Look, this isn't a pantomime. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. <laughs> um, anybody else? Why did you sit down? I'm just interested in why you sat down. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Why does it matter? OK, Lorna. She said geography didn't really matter to me. <laughs> geography doesn't matter. OK. Now, for those of you who stood, or are standing, rather, why does it matter? Because Salford is a city and was a city before Manchester. (laughs) (laughs) Because Salford was a city and I knew someone would say that. Yep, John? I've only been here two or three years, and I've come from Coventry, and and Birmingham wanted to take over Coventry, and it's the same sort of thing. Okay, We we fear, yeah, this sort of idea of one city just wanting to engulf another. Why are you standing? Some of you, why are you standing? Just quickly, why are you standing? Hang on. Hang on. (laughs) Hang on, hang on, hang on. (laughs) Salford is Salford, and even though things are not always what I'd like them to be, I am very, very proud to be born and bred in Salford, and I'm really proud to be called Salford, and I hate being called Manchester. Yeah, okay. Just say how it is. Some of you, why are you standing? Just very quickly, just so you get a chance. Sorry, my husband, I'm not from Salford, but I love Salford. Uh, My husband is from Salford. And if anyone asked him if he's from Manchester, he said, no, I'm from Salford. So I'm back in my husband. <laughs> <laughs> Very wise. <laughs> uh, perhaps one more. Cause Salford is a place of itself as well. Uh, Manchester is a wonderful place, but yeah. so is Salford. Okay. And God called me to come to Salford. I, I'm called to a place. All right. Now, just I'm going to ask you to stay standing for a moment. And I'm going to ask the same question of those of you who sat down and those of you that are standing. So it's the same question. But let me just ask the question of those of you who are standing first. And um, if you can answer this, that would be great. What's our city's story? What's the story of our city? What story do we tell ourselves about our city? Why is it? what it is. If you had to explain Salford, what would it be? What's the, what's the essence of what it means to be Salford? How would you explain it? Here you are all standing and saying, we are not going to become Manchester. Well, tell me, what's so different about Salford? Tell me your Salford story. Frank. I think um, Salford doesn't have a center. But the people of Salford certainly do have a centre. Okay, so there's something about the people. Tell me about the people. What is it about the people of Salford? I think the word earthy. Earthy. Definitely. Okay. Salt of, earth. Salt of the earth, you said, didn't you? Someone else, tell me about Salford. What is the story we tell about ourselves? Yeah, John, that's helpful. The other side of the room. And then someone down here. That'd be great. It's not about ourselves, really. I was, I've been, I was reading about how Salford was... Was in the forefront of health from many, due to one bloke who I can't remember his name. Yeah. And having come from Coventry again, when having a wife who was ill and, and me who was getting old and suddenly starting to break down, it's, it's been, just seems a much better place to live health wise. Okay. <laughs> or at least a good place to be ill. <laughs> Strap line for the new city <laughs> Salford, a good place to be ill. Um, someone else, just very quickly, tell me about the story of Salford. What is it? Well, it Hang on. Oh, yeah, go on then. No, no, go on. Salford was, um, had some very poor parts years ago. It suffered badly in the war, and then it's grown and it's put itself together. And now it's got wonderful places like the Lowry and, and the Media, Media City. And it's just... I'm just so proud of what has happened in Salford. Brilliant. Thank you. I love love Salford, right? Um, But I don't think it's any different, really, to any other city. But it's what your family is, I see it as. And that's the story of Salford. So it's the people over time. And we can look at it with rose-tinted glasses or magenta signs and um, can say that, oh, it's absolutely wonderful and we're all from this background. But like any family, you've got some nutters, um, you've got some amazing people, you've got some people you don't really want to spend any time with. Uh, But that's what a family is. And I think that (laughs) then your wider family then comes to the next cities that come along. So I think that globally, as the human race, we're a family, but you have that close-knit, don't you? You have your cousins, your uncles and stuff like that, and you have your immediate family. And Salford, that's one family that over time has had adversity like any family, has had amazing times, has bad days. It's just the family. It's the people, isn't it, is what the city is. taken. Unless somebody wants to really burningly speak, just take your seats for a moment. The story we tell about ourselves about a city, and all of that, to give you a sense of what was going on in Acts chapter 19. <laughs> all right, and you're going, oh, that's a long way. How do I get from there to here? Well, let me explain. The Ephesians had their own story, and everybody who lived in Ephesus was proud of being part of Ephesus. Ephesus had power. There was this um, this goddess called Artemis, or you might know her better as Diana. Same goddess. Diana was the Roman name. Artemis was the Greek name. This goddess, the goddess, um, in Ephesus, at least, uh, Artemis was seen as the goddess of banking. So it had economic power. Ephesus had um, power. Um, in terms of its self-awareness, what you're looking at is the theatre. That's the theatre that was mentioned here in this text. That theatre, so if you can see the um, the banking, and of course it comes all the way around, so it comes out this way, and um, the the people who were sort of like both raising the crowd and the people who were trying to Calm the crowd down. We're standing here, and all these people. This this theatre held twenty-five thousand people. Now I don't know if the theatre was full, but that's where they met. And there's the main street, the main, and you can see the colonnades. This is exactly the street that Paul walked down. And in part of the city, the other thing about Ephesus was you had this massive library. Three-story, massive, massive library. It was the center of knowledge. It was the center of economic power, It the center of grandeur. Ephesus had their own story. And Paul's been there. And when Paul goes there in verses 8 and 9, he enters the synagogue. He always does that because they're his people. So he begins where they are. He speaks boldly there for three months arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe, and they publicly maligned the way, which is how early Christians were known. It's, kind of, it's almost a better way, isn't it, of being known, rather than being a Christian, where people of the way, and Paul left them. And he took the disciples with him, though, and they had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And that went on for two years. For two years, the lectures are about what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. So all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Ephesus, this brilliant, beautiful city. Paul is in part of this city, living here in one of these houses, working, meeting people initially in one of the synagogues meeting in one of the little lecture rooms, perhaps. For two years, he's saying to the people of Ephesus, you're not primarily Ephesians. You are primarily people of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is bigger and different, and it's um, it's a challenge to Ephesus. Ephesus... Paul would be saying can be different because the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. I want to emphasize that. Some of you won't mind about this, but it's, it's important. This is one of the very few times in the book of Acts where Luke tells us that Paul was preaching about the kingdom of God. <laughs> Normally, it's about the resurrection of Jesus. It's clearly significant, but here is the kingdom of God. There's a different way of doing things around here. The kingdom of God is not just where you go when you die. It's not about heaven. It's actually about God breaking in, about God breaking into our city, about our city being different. Actually, when Paul comes in and he starts talking about the kingdom of God, this is not neutral language. And it was demonstrated and who does it gets demonstrated bit by the miracles happen? Who amongst the sick and the demon-possessed? Those dispossessed by Ephesus. You see, the demon-possessed, they, they don't get places here, they get sent over here. The sick. Well, they would get cared for in their infirmaries. But actually, they're not powerful anymore. They're kind of almost like a drain on the city. They're not productive. And it's interesting that when Paul speaks about the kingdom of God, the miracles that happen are with those people right down here, the demon-possessed, the ones that are mentally Absolutely messed. So damaged. So broken. So, so... Not one of us. For whatever reason. But these people find wholeness. The kingdom of God is breaking in. And what Luke says is interesting. I know I've read it, but let me just show you again. Many of those who believed, now came and openly confessed what they'd done. And what they were confessing is they'd they'd practiced sorcery. And they brought their scrolls together and they burned them publicly. And they calculated the value of the scrolls. The total came to 50,000 drachma. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. What's happening? In Ephesus, faith is stopped being private, the past is left behind, and people in Ephesus go, we're going to go with a new way. In other words, the old story, the story of power, and sorcery, or uh, magic, or witchcraft, I'm not talking about the sort of, that magic, you know, can, you know, there's three cards here, that sort of magic. I'm talking about the magic, the, the sorcery, where you try and control the future, Because actually, that's another form of control. It's another form of trying to get power. And you burn that, and you say, I am now saying that my future is the hands of God, and Jesus is my Lord. That's what's happening when you, you burn the magic books. That's what happens when you turn, in our context, you would be turning away from the tarot card. Now, I'm sure that, Most of us don't. I've never been involved with that. I know that. But you know that I think most of us know that temptation of, if only I could control what's happening to me somehow. Or if I could control what other people are doing to me. And for some people, that will lead them to the tarot or the Ouija or whatever. And it's not for us, but actually you can understand why psychic readings are so important for some people. Because it's like, tell me, is anybody in control here? And these people come and they say, we've heard about the kingdom of God. We've heard about a different way of seeing the future. We've heard about a different way of dealing with the present. And uh, it rocks, the city. And so there becomes this sort of big, um, almost this almost riot. It wasn't quite a riot, but it's almost a riot. Um, and and they, start to, uh, they start to protest. I love this picture, by the way. I don't know if you can see that at the back. You know it's bad when the introverts are marching. It's kind of like, it's, <laughs> it's, they all come out. <laughs> because what they say is, this is not good news. In other words, the city led by people like Demetrius, the person, the silversmith, who's creating the little shrines of Artemis. Demetrius and the associated trades. It's like all of the trade union people come, and they say, if Paul gets his way, we're out of business. If all these people start following Jesus, listen, lads, nobody's going to be buying our little Little charms, we're out of business. We need to drive him out. Because the gospel has overturned the economic reality. And Demetrius and the city say, this is not good news. We'll lose money and we'll lose status. And what they say is, if, um, if Paul gets his way, if the kingdom of God becomes a reality in our city, then people won't want to come. The tourism will go down. Because everybody knows that in our history, that meteorite, this is a story, the meteorite fell from heaven, hit the earth, and where the, it hit the earth, that's where the temple of Artemis is. Everybody knows that story. Everybody knows that if you want prosperity, you come to that temple. That's why Airbnb in first century Ephesus was so popular. That's why you could have a little workshop knocking out these little models of Artemis because everybody's coming. Now, if they follow Jesus, they won't. They won't come. The gospel is a threat to the existing culture. The gospel is a threat to the existing culture, the existing way we do it around here. You see this every now and again, don't you? And most of the time, it's like, sometimes things happen and you go, well, I don't really understand why you would do that. And other times, people do things that are against the existing culture. You think, that's great. Three really random examples that, just as I was preparing, I was trying to think of examples of random ways of challenging the culture. These three. Um... About 10 years ago, a young man called Shane Claiborne, who is an American, um, he got together with some of his friends. And it was a time, do you remember when Occupy was, uh, do you remember when uh, they were doing the Occupy movement, where people were coming and and, and, and sort of raging against the banks and the the financial system? So he and some mates got together, and they collected um, $20,000 dollars. And they uh, transferred it all into dollar bills and to coins. And they went onto the steps of the stock exchange. And they started throwing it away. Just threw $20,000 into the streets. Well, you can imagine what happened. (laughs) Um, Everything stopped. And the bankers, they kept on walking. But the poor people, they stopped. And they were grabbing at this money. And people asked him, why are you doing such a stupid thing? And he said, because actually, in this place, money is God. And what I want to do is show I can laugh at it. We're going to just throw it away. And some of you go, well, that money could have been spent a whole stack better. Some of you are going, why wasn't I there? Some of you... You think that is just stupid. And of course, on one level, it is stupid. And of course, it's not wise. And of course, it's not. But one person with his friends in New York 10 years ago says, money's not God round here on the steps of the New York Stock Exchange where money is king. It's like a, an easier example for you. Um, do you remember, I mean, now it's commonplace, but do you remember the first time you saw the letter from the head teacher to their children before the exam results came out and, or the teacher and, and the letter said something to the effect of whatever you do, you are not your exam results. And, and then suddenly it was like someone had written what we all da- deep down believe, but how many of us as parents know the anxiety of what if our children don't do as well as they might? And that anxiety of what if they don't get the grades to go to college? What if they don't get the grades to go to university? What if, what if, what if? And suddenly, without even thinking about it, we bought into a culture that says that's the good life. And the gospel comes and says, as the teacher who wrote the letter says, you are not what your grades say. And the good life is not just about did you achieve everything that everybody expected of you. The gospel says actually your life is not determined simply by your exam results. Your life is held by your father. And as parents, some of us need to know that so deep down that yes, we want our children to do as well as they can. We want them to fulfill their potential. But actually, do you know what? We can easily buy into the same dream that everybody else has. And indeed... We can pray so hard that even we don't even stop to think: Are we getting into it? The third example, and and I'm, I think this is one that will be much more relevant for all of you. You've probably all been watching Love Island, <laughs> um, and so um, you, you didn't. It's on catch-up, um, and um, apparently, I, 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 you know, I, I say it to you. Um, I, I, I haven't watched it. But I have kind of been aware of it. And I didn't know this until I read the article the other day. But the young guy who won. I don't know if you know the premise of Love Island even. How many knows what Love Island is actually about? Okay. So we've got experts in the room. We've got five minutes to go, girls, before the service finishes. But before they go, we want educated people in this church. So um, very quickly, explain Love Island. Um, It's basically where, like people go into a villa for like eight weeks and... What, so, what do these people look like? Basically like skinny, um, tanned, just Basic. I don't Beautiful know. Beautiful people. Yeah. A bit yeah. like these people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and... Um, they go into this villa and the idea is... To find love, but most people go in it for fame. Mm. Yeah. So cynical in one so young. <laughs> so they go into this villa male and female, beautiful people, young people, and they go to find love. And actually, they go to find a relationship as well, don't they? That's what we mean. The guy who won it didn't sleep with anybody in Love Island. I'm, I'm now at the edge of my knowledge. <laughs> did you read the same article? He did have a relationship. He didn't win it. He didn't win it. Oh, It's disappointing. We're going to edit this all out of this sermon when it goes online. Um, either that, or we're going to ask my wife not to come to sermons in the future. One of those two things is going to happen. <laughs> but the point is, he didn't. He didn't sleep. He didn't. He was countercultural in a context where it was really difficult to be countercultural. So here's, here's that that that's, that didn't end quite as well as I had hoped. Um, if I'm really honest, um, do you know, that's just a little disappointing. Um, so now what I'm doing is trying hard to finish on something far more positive, on an uplift note. This is actually what's happening right now. Um, uh, he did win. He did win. Hang on. <laughs> he did win. Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> He did, the, the holiday me and Maggie are going on tomorrow was going to get a whole better now. Um, he did win. I thought he'd won. I don't know why I listened to you. Um, but the point is, he didn't sleep with anybody. Anyway, one of us is really going to enjoy the holiday. Um, the big point, thank you, the big point is this We live in a particular place with a particular culture. And we are people of the way. We are people whose lives have been changed by the announcement of the kingdom of God. We started the service this morning by praying for those people that we are most concerned about. And we did so because actually we believe that this God breaks in and changes the stories. And we do so because it's happened to us. Because God has actually changed our stories. That's why we prayed. So in your place, as church, we would pray that God would change our cities. But your place, your workplace, your family, your neighborhood, who's the gospel good news for? In the New Testament, the gospel is always good news for people who feel they've been dispossessed. Churches ought to look more like places where people go, you wouldn't believe my history. Because that's who the gospel is really good news for. And, I, and, and we can romanticize that, but you know what? Those of you who have been there, you just know how difficult it is. And those of us who are working and praying for people in contexts like that, you know how difficult that journey is. But the truth is, our churches and our church needs to be fuller of people who go, You would not believe my past. One of the best things that I can say from time to time is when people, new people come to our church, they, they, I know you'll laugh, they say, Do you know those people, they all look so together. And I go, Well, (laughs) I don't tell anybody else's story, but I say, you know what? What we look like is not what we are. You would not believe some of our stories. We need more of that in our church because the gospel is good news for people that you would say, you would not believe my story. But let me tell you, the gospel is bad news for some people because this culture is one that needs redeeming because there's brilliant parts of our city But there's things that actually we would want to say, we want to see our city change. And the gospel, and as Christians living it out in your workplace, you will challenge that. So the question is, how do you demonstrate it? And will you risk a backlash? Paul, to finish. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote two letters. And in his second letter, He said, it was when I was in Ephesus, when I was in that part of Asia. Things got so bad for me, he said, that I'd given up on life itself. I was so badly, in such a bad place. And what all the commentators and the people who thought about this a lot and done the study, what they reckon is that this two years or more that Paul spent in Ephesus was such a costly place for Paul. It wasn't all joy. It wasn't all ease. It was a place where he actually felt the cost of this. The kingdom of God is proclaimed. People believe it. The, those on the edge hear it. They see the good news. The culture moves against it, and pressures it, and someone pays the price. The question is, will we? We're through. But I'd like us to pray together. And without it being sort of melodramatic or anything, if today... And it's it's kind of like this is true for us all the time. But if for today it's particularly significant for you, there might be a moment where you go, I'm gonna recommit myself to the cost of demonstrating what the gospel's about. I'm gonna recommit myself to demonstrating what the gospel's all about. And if that's true, as we pray, do you wanna stand? It's true of us for all of us, all the time. But there are times when it's actually, today's the day when, again, I will say, I'll pay the cost of following Jesus, not just for myself, but for the sake of others. And if that makes sense to you, then do you want to just stand and we'll pray together? It might be in your workplace, in your family, in the people you care for. Father God, we together, all of us, say, we know that the kingdom of God, we pray that the kingdom of God will come. We pray that your will will be done here in our places as it is in heaven. We pray that the kingdom of God will break in. But we know that for that to happen, that will mean that those on the extremes, those with the most difficult context will be reached. But Lord, we pray that we will pay the price for that to happen, that we won't be afraid, that we won't back off, that we won't be ashamed, that we won't be fearful. Lord, for those who stand today, particularly today. Give us the strength that we need to be the people who live this through. Father God, may you be the one who enables us to take a stand for the good news in our place, in our workplace, in our families, in our city. May our city change. May those who are dispossessed May they know the good news of the gospel. May those who have no hope, even if they've got lots of possessions but have no hope, may they know the hope of Jesus. May families that are fractured be reunited. May lives that are fractured be made whole through the cross of Jesus. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. May your blessing rest upon us. May you send us out in the power of the Spirit. May we live for your joy and for your mercy in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.